0: Hello, listeners. Long time no talk, which is our fault, not yours. This past week was crazy for us. Between the trade deadline and both of us being on the road, it was tough to coordinate times. So we missed a listener email show, which we will make up with an extra episode or maybe an extra long episode in the coming week. But fortunately, we were able to get together this past Saturday because we were both in the same room at Saber Seminar, the excellent annual conference for baseball learning in Austin, whose proceeds always go to charity. It's organized excellently every year by Chuck Corb and our Friend Dan Brooks who invited us to do This live podcast at Saber Seminar For the second consecutive year so in just A second you will hear me and Jeff In front of a live audience with a few cool Guests and if that sounds like something you'd Be interested in and you're somewhere in the New York Area if you're listening to this before Monday Night you still have time to attend our next Live show at the Bell House in Brooklyn On Monday evening Jeff and I will be Recording another live podcast Jay Jaffe will be there Hannah Kaiser Lindsay Adler and Tom Lay from Deadspin will be there You can get tickets on Ticketfly.com Com. Just go there and search for pitch talks It should be the first result Also I will link to that ticket buying page In the Facebook group And on the blog post at Fangrass. We hope you can join us Tickets are $15 But you can get a $5 discount Using the coupon code Ringer. That's one word Alright, so let me take you on an auditory journey To Saturday afternoon at Saber Seminar And thank you to our Patreon supporters For making this possible
1: I got paid but I do it cause I love it All enemies, hush, let the seminar start yeah.
0: The seminar. All right, hello everyone. I am Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for The Ringer. This is Jeff the, Sullivan, <laughs>
2: right
0: the <laughs> We didn't plan the greetings out. We usually do this with a, a continent between us. So this is new for us. This is or will be episode 1092 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast at Fangraphs. You can catch up on the other 1,091 later. They were mostly about baseball. We did this here last year, and the nice thing about doing a live podcast at Sabre Seminars that the crowd is full of people that we would probably want to talk to anyway. This is like one of the few places where you could probably just randomly select someone from a crowd and do a pretty good baseball podcast with them, except for the people who have NDAs and confidentiality agreements. There are a few of those I see also. But we were originally supposed to talk to Dickie Thon, the former major league player today. And Dan said, do you guys want to do a podcast? And we said, sure. And he said, do you want to talk to Dickie Thon? And we Said, sure, I think so. Okay, we'll figure out something. And so that is what it says on the program. But we are not talking to Dickie Thon. Dickie Thon's not here. So if you were at the conference solely to see Dickie Thon, I, I apologize. I hope you get your money's worth anyway. But we have some other really interesting former players here. And uh, last year we talked to Brian Bannister, we talked to John Baker, we talked to David Ardsma. They've all been on the podcast, and today we are talking to Dave Bush first, who is uh, right next to me, and I believe your, your title is uh, what pitching analyst, pitching
3: development analyst for the Red Sox. I'm a pitching development analyst. Uh, I just started this past year, but essentially I'm using, to use the big word, using the data and trying to incorporate into our coaching, our player development. Mm-hmm. There's so much information, and a lot of teams, including the Red Sox, are having trouble getting that. To the players and to the coaches. Mm -hmm. I know Bannister started with it last year. He was trying to do everything. It ended up being too much. So this year he's with the big league team full time. And I got hired to do essentially the whole minor league system. So to travel around to all the affiliates, to introduce stuff to younger guys, to make some different changes with the older guys, but essentially to bridge the gap from all the info to our players in our system and try to speed up their player development.
0: Mm-hmm. So I don't know how often former big league players get this kind of thing, but I don't play fantasy <laughs> sports anymore. But when I did, there was like a two-year period where you, Dave Bush, were like my number one sleeper <laughs> for like two springs in a row. It was like well-known in the league that you could extract a very high price from from Bentlenburg for Dave Bush because you had like a good ground ball rate. You didn't walk anyone. And there were a couple of years there where you had like fielding independent pitching stats that were much lower than the actual runs that you had allowed, and so you were kind of the popular sabermetric pick for like the breakout sleeper player. So there were a couple of years there where people would just like draft Dave Bush, knowing that they could trade me, Dave Bush, (laughs) for (laughs) for someone who uh, maybe was worth more. No offense, but. I have acquired uh, Dave Bush on my podcast, so I'm pleased about that. And I'm I'm curious because you and Brian, I think, were maybe sort of similar style pitchers, at least like, you know, you were more of the finesse type pitcher, as opposed to Brian's father, for instance, who was the the flamethrower. And I wonder whether that has contributed to the fact that you are in these roles now, that you... I don't know whether, like Brian, you were into the numbers and the analytics when you were a player because he kind of became famous in in very small sabermetric circles for looking at his pitch FX data after his starts and that kind of thing. But it seems to me that that's kind of a common element among the players who've been hired to do the jobs that you guys have is that like... You guys had to exploit every edge that you could while you were players, just to get the most out of your your skills and your talent. So, I wonder whether that is something that ties you together, and when you started getting interested in, in this side of the game.
3: Well, yeah, it was uh, for Banny and I. We we actually started against each other one time in the big leagues. So we've uh, we've recounted that story a couple of times. Yeah, share um, it with us. Well, <laughs> we uh, I think it was two thousand seven. I ended up getting the win. I've reminded him a couple of times. We both struck each other out. <laughs> so we have that to go on. One of my odd kind of recalls in that game is I turned to one unassisted double play, Ooh. which is an extremely rare play. Yeah. Uh, so I kind of remember it for that from that game. Who uh, had the higher game score? That's what I want to know. You could pretty, play index that probably really real yeah. quick, right? <laughs> I think yeah, it was me. I can't swear yeah, to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but I know uh, even back then that before I really knew Brian, I knew he was ahead of the curve as far as player involvement with these kind of numbers. Pitch FX was just starting to show up. The first stadium I remember seeing him in was in, in Pittsburgh, and they were putting numbers up on the scoreboard, and I had no idea what they meant. It was negatives and positives and all kinds of stuff that I just – I was curious about it, but I didn't know what it meant, and no one I played with or played for knew what it meant. Mm-hmm. Um, this probably would have been like 07, 08, maybe I can't remember exactly when it was, but yeah. it, it was early on and I knew this stuff was coming. I just, I wasn't aware enough to to figure it all out on my own. But I remember reading about Brian back then and knowing that he was trying to maximize his abilities and one of the ways he was doing it was, was through data and through numbers and, and going beyond just the regular stats that we were always presented with. So as for myself, I was a kind of a general four-pitch pitcher. I relied on command and mixing my pitches and... Being different than whatever the hitter may expect, and so my whole game was centered around being able to take advantage of whatever whatever I could find. So whether it was hitter tendency, whether it was something about the movement on my pitches, being able to link pitches back to back to back, remembering what I'd done previous at bats, you know, all the different scouting reports, all that stuff I had to have in my mind, so that on the mound I could make split second decisions, pitch to pitch, deciding what I was going to do. In a way, it it really helped me in in what I'm doing now because. A lot of the things that I look for now in our pitchers when we do development are things that I learned intuitively on the mound, based on hit or reaction, based on results. But I had to do it by trial and error in the big leagues. And... Now the goal is to identify those things earlier and help players get a hold of them in the minor leagues as low as possible. So by the time they get to the big leagues, they've already figured some of that stuff out. And at the very least, they know themselves better. So we can identify, help them identify what they do well, maximize those things, and then put them in the best position to be successful in the big leagues. I can I can give you some
2: details. Dave Bush, seven innings, one run. Mm-hmm. Outstanding start, game score 61. Brian Bannister, five innings, six runs. He was, he was, he was not a clean... So you you were hired by the Red Sox uh, last winter, last November, last December, whatever it was. But your your playing career had ended a few years before that, and I understand you worked with uh, an organization called MLB International, and you were sort of doing a a development role, but in a a very different sort of circumstance, working with sort of developing. I don't know what word to use markets in markets in other countries, other continents. So as, uh, as broad a question as this is, I was wondering if you could speak to sort of the things you were doing in, in Europe, for example, or if you had some time that you were working with players in, in Africa or
3: China, right? Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> so it, it started, um, I finished playing in 2013 and I took the next year off. Just needed to live a normal life for, or as close to normal life as I could for a year. I have some time with my family and some time at home. Not sure if I wanted to get back into the game at all or not. I was a little bit burned out from competing and you know, trying to carry my, as, as my skills declined, trying to carry it through as long as I could. And that got harder and harder. And I finally needed a break and, and took it that year. And then by the end of 2014, I started missing a little bit and wanting to get back around the game. Not sure in what capacity, but, you know, with the stress gone, I was able to enjoy kind of the smaller parts of the game that i always liked as a kid. And started to get back involved with coaching. And then I met Bruce Hurst at a coach's convention, and at the time he was a pitching coach for the Chinese national team. Introduced myself, told him i recently retired and was looking to get back in the game and always liked traveling, was curious about the international stuff, and so he put me in touch uh, with a guy in New York who runs the MLB International program. And I called that guy up right away, He didn't expect him to answer, happened to answer the phone, Again, explained who I was, talked to him for a little bit, and told him that I'd played in Korea towards the end of my career and I had some experience overseas. And he asked me if I was willing to go to China. I said, sure, you know, like, why not? <laughs> uh, I've been over in Asia for a little bit. I, I'm kind of curious to see what it's like. So within a few weeks, I was on a plane to China to work at the MLB Development Center over there. That led to some work in Europe. Europe led to some work in Australia and Africa. And then uh, I ended up taking over for Bruce as the pitching coach of the Chinese national team. And so all those things kind of link together, and, and the, the goal in each place is different. When we're talking about China, you have a billion and a half people there. And so if we can find one major league caliber player, then you're opening up a billion and a half people as a fan base.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, it's easy to say kind of the Yao Ming effect. Mm-hmm. But the idea is the same, that, that if you can get a player that the whole country is interested in, you have a ton of fans that, that are going to start following baseball. So I'd say it's a little bit less about finding talented players there as trying to open up a market. Now when we go to Europe, we're less likely to open up a market of baseball fans, there's some team sports that are well entrenched there. That's gonna be hard to break through, but there are some talented players and some relatively recently that have come out of Europe. So when we do work in Europe, we're talking more about finding specific players that might be good enough to come here, certainly to play in the minor leagues and hopefully develop into some good big leaguers. Same thing in Australia, you're looking for talented players. Africa would be a similar kind of thing where it's less about developing the market but more about finding players like Gift and some other guys. I I coached on the South African national team also And we had a handful of minor league guys that are pretty talented and have a chance to get to the big leagues. Uh, So there's a lot of good baseball out there, it's just it's a different path for all those guys. They don't have the little league and school setup that we have here, so they're not playing organized baseball from the time they're five or six. So the learning curve, it starts a lot later, but it's a lot steeper because they have a lot to learn in a relatively short period of time.
0: So what's the level of awareness in China? I mean, how uh, many people play? What, yeah, China, what's the level of play? China,
3: China's tough. Um, you, know, you have between Korea, Taiwan, and Japan, you have yeah. some three very good baseball nations right around there. And China's way behind, way, <laughs> way behind in their interest in the level of player in participation. It's just not very popular. It's not on TV at all. And so in some cases, we're working with as young as middle school age Chinese kids who have never picked up a ball before. They've gotten in the program for their size, for their athleticism, for some other sport they've played. But in some cases, it's the very first time they've picked up a ball. And so you're really starting with basics like how to hold the ball and how to grip it. And then we're developing from there. You know, they've been running that program through MLB for close to 10 years now. And there are uh, another guy signed a few weeks ago, but now three guys who are going to be in the minor leagues who are native Chinese players that came through that system. And we're trying to gra- eventually trying to graduate them onto the national team and the goal would be to be able to compete a little bit better in the WBC, to be able to compete as kind of a fourth country in that Asian group and, and have a better foundation in that part of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's getting better. It's it's a slow process, but it's getting a lot better. It's a it's a lot of fun. I've worked with some really, really cool kids and some, some good players. It's taught me a lot about myself, a lot about how I coach. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's given me a different perspective on, on what it means to develop players and how we go about it.
0: Yeah. So if you're working with a Chinese pitcher who has just picked up a ball, how is what you're doing different from, I mean, now you're working with the Red Sox, you're working with guys who've been brought up around the game. How do you start with
3: a Chinese pitcher? Yes, yeah, just... well, the, the, the most important thing is developing a relationship of some sort, Yeah, and, and that's carried over a lot to my current job, is if I can't have a one-on-one relationship with a player, then I'm not going to be able to get my point across, no matter what my point is. So it starts with trying to be personal with them, try to learn just a, a couple of simple Chinese phrases just so they know that I'm trying because they're trying to learn English at the same time. And then it's just evaluating the individual because each guy has different issues. Some guys have physical issues that they're trying to work through. Other guys have never really competed at anything. And so they're trying to get through the emotions and the mental game of Staying on the mound and being all by yourself yeah. and throwing a good pitch. In the WBC, we were out in Japan in March of this past year, and for almost all my players, we're playing in the Tokyo Dome, and that's a 50,000-seat stadium. Yeah. They've never seen anything even close to that. And so getting them to, to keep themselves under control, and so look, we're, just, we're competing just like we did at the field back in China. Mm-hmm. and uh, getting them to understand that aspect of it. When you're talking about development, you're trying to identify certain characteristics of those players that they might develop into better pitchers. Like I said, that's helped me a little bit leading into my current job where just you know identifying what I think may work and, and how we can go about getting the most out of those kind of kids.
2: Yeah. I would think that uh, when uh, you you talked about the importance of developing a relationship with the players that you were developing before, and now you you bring that into your current role where it, I mean it might be 50-60% of your job is just being able to have a an established relationship with a young pitcher that you're working with but like you said they, they brought you in because it was too much for Bannister to be handling and I mean you've got dozens maybe 100 pitchers who are technically under your watch. How do you feel like you've been able to, to maintain relationships with players where it might it might seem like you're sort of having to bounce bounce around and not be able to get very deep?
3: It, it's a bit of a challenge. It's uh, I'm learning everybody this year. Being my first year I've got a whole system's worth to learn so I Spend spent a lot of time in the spring training trying to get to know the coaches, trying to uh, just observe a lot, talk to some people, get a feel for for what we do as an organization, get a feel for what the coaches are trying to do, try to feel, get a feel for just where our players are and the things we're trying to work on. And then, as you said, a lot of it's just building relationships. There's There's a ton of numbers out there. There's a lot of information. A lot of it's available to everybody. It's what you can do with it. And to me, that starts with having that personal relationship with coaches and players. That I can sit down with, with piles and piles of numbers, but if coaches and players don't trust me or don't believe in what I'm giving them, then it's not going to get anywhere.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And so it's building that level of trust so that I feel confident having a conversation where it's back and forth, where it's not just me giving numbers and saying, go do this. It's me presenting them with something that I think is going to help them. And they give me some feedback and then I give something back and we go back and forth because there's rarely a single answer or never a single answer for a problem on the field. It's a matter of presenting some options and and letting the players and the coaches find something they're comfortable with and they can take take ownership of. Mm And then, um, you know, as they develop and as they make changes, then there's more info for them. And the things that I tell guys in A-Ball is different than what I might tell some guys in AAA Mm -hmm. and different than what Benny works on in the big leagues. Because at each level, you're working on a different aspect of development. Yeah. So to the extent that you
0: can tell us, how do you fit into the organizational depth chart? You have Brian, you have coaches with each affiliate. You have maybe a, another kind of pitching coordinator. You have the front office analysts who are probably feeding you information. So how do you communicate with yeah, just everyone you work it's, with?
3: It's a little bit of everything. Yeah. And, and it really is. Uh, sometimes Bandy and I will laugh because no one's quite sure what to do with us. We're, we're not yeah. really coaches, but we're not really front office guys either. We're some combination of both where the playing experience I had helps me in being able to be on the field and being comfortable on the field and being able to have those conversations with players and coaches because, to some extent, I've been there. Like mm-hmm. I said, I, I learned a lot of this intuitively on the field, and I made a lot of mistakes along the way, and so hopefully I can help guys understand those things earlier than I did. Uh, at the same time, I have to be able to have conversations with the guys in the front office, too, because they're the ones who are giving us this data, and they're the ones who are helping me understand it. And they're the ones who are building the programs for it, and so my people skills have had to work hard on that, in being able to talk to a lot of different people mm-hmm. we've got guys who don't speak english that i have to be able to communicate in some way with we have high school age american kids we have college kids we have I said, all the guys in the front office so there's a lot of variety which i like but there's a lot of challenges in that i'm bridging the gap between a lot of different groups in an area that's still relatively new I mean, yes the numbers have been around for 10 years in some cases with the, the pitch fx but it's still not something that everyone accepts and everyone understands and so i can't just throw numbers out there and say this is it it's got to come with some sort of explanation So that the understanding, when when we get to the point where everyone understands what we're talking about, then we have a collective group that can move forward quickly. So a lot of what I do is just building those bridges and and trying to explain things in a way that that we can get everyone on board and and let them know that all of this advice is with the intention of helping the players get better. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's nothing in it for me, there's nothing in it for anyone else other than we're trying to put the best product on the field Mm -hmm. and help guys develop the fastest and the best. And anything I provide is with that goal in mind.
2: I don't mean to interrupt the conversation we're having about your, your current role, but uh, something I did want to make sure to throw out. I, n- I noticed earlier that you uh, you faced Barry Bonds nine times. I did, and yes. You, uh, you only allowed one hit. I did. about three times. I did. What made you better?
0: <laughs>
3: By the transitive property, you're the best pitcher in the world. So uh, in, in, two <laughs> in two years in a row, I think it, w- it would have been probably 06 and 07, mm-hmm. he was right at in milestone numbers. So when I think I think he was at 714 in 06 and maybe 754 in 07. And so it was, you know, every, every at-bats alive cut in. And I remember thinking to myself that, I'm going to go after him. Like, I was a control guy. If all of a sudden I start pitching around, God, like, it's just not the way I competed. And so I was determined that I was going to go after him one way or another. And uh, I remember just being really excited about those at-bats and, <laughs> and the chance to face someone that good. I mean, he's he's the best. And, and he was even then at, at mm-hmm. 40-something years old. Yeah. But I remember being amazed in, in the course of a, of a game. He'll have four at-bats. You know, might see 15 or so pitches. Swing one time yeah. and hit a line drive, <laughs> right. and, and it was—I I was astonished at his ability to to never be off balance, to never chase a pitch, mm-hmm. to be so patient. And then when he decided to swing, hit a line drive. Yeah, and and he was just—he like I said—even at that point in his career, he was so good, so much better than everyone else. What was
0: the scouting report?
3: Well, <laughs> yeah. What was the game plan? Because
0: like you were around the plate and. As you mentioned, he doesn't chase anyway,
3: so... <laughs> so, yeah, the, the goal, it wasn't a whole lot different for most guys, but to mm-hmm. mix my pitches and, and try to get him to swing at something that that I dictated. Mm-hmm. And as long as I could dictate the situation, I felt like I had a slightly better chance. Um. Mm-hmm. I don't go into it thinking I'm going to get him out all those times or strike him out, but but the goal is to make quality pitches mm-hmm. and then if the situation presents itself, go for a strikeout. I wasn't typically a strikeout pitcher, but they would show up when I was hitting my spots and able to sequence my pitches the way I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, I was able to do that in, in those couple games. But, um, I mean, yeah, those are moments that I remember a lot from a player that had chances to play against some of the best players in the history of the game yeah. and be able to compete against them. Yeah, that's
2: that's thirty three percent. Strike it right against Barry Bonds. <laughs> Technically, just maybe maybe you didn't have the numbers in the back of your head, but I would carry that with me around forever. Yeah, everywhere. And probably tattoo material. <laughs> I would, I would, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you you obviously you you made it to the major leagues. You stuck around for a while. You pitched in Korea uh, a little toward the end of your your career, and then you you uh, worked with MLB International. Now you have a job with the Red Sox. Obviously, every player that you were working with. Currently, the, the dream is the same, they want to make it to the major leagues, they want to have a long, successful, very healthy shoulder and elbow-y career, but I would imagine that one of the reasons that you were brought in is that you can offer this perspective. You've, you've been everywhere, you've done a lot of different things in baseball, you had a modestly successful career, but also one that's very colorful, it took you in a lot of places, so to, to what extent you're, you're interacting with very young pitchers. How often do you talk about how, you know, it, making the major leagues and staying there for 10, 15 years isn't always life and death, you know, that you can do a lot more with this career than just trying to be
3: the 1%. Yeah, there, there's been a lot of variety. I've, I've been very lucky in that regard. In that, you know, One, I was able to, to develop and get to the big leagues and stick around for a while. And then following that, i have been able to, to get more out of baseball than just being a player. And I, I probably didn't realize that as a player. You know, I, I knew there were some options out there, but didn't know if I wanted to pursue that. And then I've found that, that I have a skill set and some experiences that lend lend themselves very well to doing what I'm doing now. And you know, I've, I've tried to explain that to some of the players, that each experience we have on the field, good and bad, adds to our total package of, of who we are as a player and, and what we can become after that. I've reminded plenty of guys, and up, up until last week, I was the most recent pitcher to give up back-to-back-to-back. To back to back. To back home runs in the big leagues. And, you know, it, it was a moment when it happened where, you know, like, four home runs in a row, it doesn't happen very often. You've got, and got company up. now. Right. <laughs> and, and I remember, you know, like, having to answer questions afterwards and, and, and being upset by it and, and trying to deal with that. But then realizing that, that it wasn't the end of the world and that five days later I was going to start again. And so I used some of those experiences to tell guys look, there's going to be some really, really bad moments on the field. There's some really good moments, too. And being able to find a, kind of a steady place in between served me very well and it's helped me post-playing career and some of the other things I've done, too. Did Michael Blazek give you a phone call? <laughs> I brought that up to a few guys, and, and uh, oddly enough, the other record from that game was I think what, five more runs in an inning, mm-hmm. and the last time that had happened was also a game I started, but, <laughs> but, it, but it was for us offensively in Milwaukee, uh, so I was on, on both sides of that. But look, the, those those things happen. It, it's a lot easier to take now that, that I'm retired. I can you know, have a, a much better perspective on those things. But the important part is that as a player, there, there's always ups and downs downs and there's some difficult moments and being able to find uh, a steadiness in between where you can deal with that and use it to get better and, and make adjustments from it. Um, like I said, this served me very well. It's one of the reasons I was able to stick around with, with really average stuff um, was I could make those adjustments start to start, game to game, uh, bat to at bat, and try to just be as good as I could in each situation.
0: So can you give us any kind of case study on how your job has helped or made a difference this year? Like You know, Brian, for instance, it's been reported that he helped reinvent Rich Hill, and Mm -hmm. he's the guy who kind of encouraged him to start relying on his breaking ball more or mixing up his pitches, that kind of thing. And, you know, every now and then you'll see uh, Brian Bannister innovation credited somewhere in the media for for something a, a Red Sox pitcher is doing differently. Is there anything you can point to? Even if you don't identify the player, but just some case this year where you think you were able to make a difference with someone. Yeah, there's,
3: as I said before, it changes by the level. Mm -hmm. Um, With lower levels, it's it's helping guys identify what they actually do and how their ball actually moves. There's a tremendous amount of uh, misidentification of a guy's own stuff. A lot of pitchers think their balls do one thing, and it does something entirely different. Hmm. And so the biggest thing at the lower levels is helping guys figure out what they actually do well and getting them to understand that they think they throw a sinker. It's a very common misperception is guys think they throw sinkers, and it's really just a two-seam with, with you know, a little more than average arm side run. Hmm. In today's game of low ball hitters, that's uh, even less effective than it typically would be because that goes right into swing plane. And so some some of it is just getting guys away from a bad habit and let them know that, that their four seamers are much better pitched than their two seamer. And in spite of what anyone's told them in the past, we have data to prove it, and at least and here it is, you can look at it if you want to, but we're telling you that... The pitch you're throwing more often is less effective. And so just identifying what their best pitches are so they can maximize what they're doing on the mound. That's probably the biggest thing with younger guys is just identifying what they are. As you move up, we're, we're talking more about pitch mix and you know, shaping pitches a little bit differently and trying to help guys get you know a little more of this, a little more of that to add to a mix that already exists. And so so without getting too, into too many specifics, it's with our, with our starting pitchers, Particularly, it's getting them to utilize a mix that is best for their repertoire. So if you're a four-pitch pitcher, here's a mix that's probably going to work better for you. If you're a three-pitch guy with one outstanding pitch, we're going to trend you this way a little bit.
0: Mm. And are you saying, like, here's the graph that shows you why that is the case, or here are your spin rates, or here's how much are you getting into the the reasons? It
3: it all depends on the guy. Yeah. Um, And that's where the relationship part comes in. That Some guys really want numbers and can handle it and like the info because it gives them some sense of security that it's right. Other guys are overwhelmed by that, mm-hmm. and they just want some simpler goals that they can keep in mind when they're out in the mound. So I try to determine, you know, again, based on the relationship and interaction, which path is best. Mm-hmm. And before I present a guy with information, I'm going to talk to his pitching coach, i going to talk to the pitching coordinator so that they all know and they're okay with whatever information I'm giving out. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how the chain of command works, it's got to start from the top down, it has to be something that we're all on board with. So by the time it gets to the player, it's been filtered through a couple different steps, and we've talked about the best way to present it, and whether it's something that goes right to the pitcher, or do we go to the catcher instead, because the pitcher is going to be overwhelmed by thinking about it. And then the, the more we can get all that stuff incorporated together, then the smoother this kind of thing is. But you know, as you guys know, that not everyone likes numbers. Yeah. the way that we do. <laughs> right. And uh, and doing it the right way, it has to happen that way or it's just not going to get us anywhere. At the major league level, at least
2: this year, the Red Sox, I think I saw their number one team in throwing high fastballs. Their fastballs are really high and they're doing it more than ever. Last I checked, I think they're the most extreme team in that regard that we've seen in the last 10 years. You talked about the, the low ball hitters, the swing plane stuff that's going on right now. Seems like there's the beginning of a trend there, but, you know, that's that's kind of Bannister's concern, and you're working with these pitchers who are at much either the next level below the Majors or all the way down. And so you were you were talking about getting pitchers to understand their strengths, but when you are in a development role where you have this longer-term perspective, to what extent are you trying to respond even down there to sort of trends that you're seeing at the Major League level in anticipation of, oh, maybe your sinker's not going to play so well when you move up four or five levels in a number of years.
3: That, that's certainly- a big part of it. It's not always what I tell the players because we're trying to keep their goals, you know, something right in front of their eyes. That If you're an A ball, I'll explain to you what you have to do in the big leagues, seems like it's too far away. So let's see what you can do in A ball and then when you master that we'll give you some goals to do in double A. With things like the high fastball, that that's something that's, that's worked very well for us as you know, we know and you put up on some of the charts. So it's important, especially at the higher level in minor leagues, that our pitchers are able to do that because it's going to be asked of them when they get here. And so that's a good example of something that, that trickles down from the top, is we have some goals in mind. We have certain ways that we pitch hitters in the big league level and, and how our scattering reports work. I don't want to tell all of our A guys to pitch down the zone, and then they get up here and they're asked to pitch up in the zone. They've never done it before. So there's a lot of connectedness between uh, what Brian's doing with the big league team and with their scattering reports and their approach to pitching that in its own way trickles down. I'm not going to ask a guy to do it if it's not best for him, but with the understanding that if he gets to the big leagues, that's probably a pitch he's going to have to throw. And so it's something we'll work on when the time is right.
0: All right. Well, we really appreciate it. We're lucky that you were just in the crowd. We could just <laughs> pull up Dave Bush. Sure. I wish it had been that easy to acquire you a decade ago on my fantasy team. But we made up for for last time. So thank you very much, Dave. Appreciate it. Thanks. We've got uh, Dan Blewett, Kyle Vance, and Dave Fisher. And they are all also professional baseball players, or have been up until recently. Just wanted to, to get the perspective. Uh, these guys have been everywhere. They have played on all continents and countries and all levels of professional baseball. If I could just pass this around very quickly and uh, just
5: give your your brief bio and what your name is, where you played, that kind of thing. Um, so my name plays well to hecklers. My name's Dan Blewett. Um, so it's, it's been well used, worn out over the years. I'm um, from Baltimore. I played uh, six years, well, seven years, six seasons um, in independent ball. I've been a right-handed pitcher. I've been a starter and a reliever. And my claim to fame: two things. Number one, I'm a two-time Tommy John survivor, which is not a badge of honor necessarily, but. I also uh, was voted an all-star in my respective leagues after each one, so that was something I was proud of. Um, and I've also hit Jose Canseco with a pitch, <laughs> and I've grounded out twice against him. I've hit against him as well. <laughs> so, some interesting stories back there.
1: Stuff to follow, that's good. Uh, my name is David Fisher, played since 2012 professionally, I was with the Nationals for three years. Got up to high A with them, played independent ball for two years. And then played uh, this past season. Just got released actually three days ago. So fresh off the boat Uh, (laughs) from the Minnesota Twins. But I kind of am looking forward to it. Cool coming up here right away. I was talking to Kevin here. And uh, he had an opportunity for me to come here and check some stuff out. And dip my toes into some stuff I want to do in the future. So I'm excited. How you doing? Um, Kevin Vance. Played four years with the White Sox. Um, And then Rick Conn came along and released (laughs) 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 Um,
4: No no hard feelings there. It was great. Um, Then a year at the Diamondbacks. Um, and then a year with Dan, Long Island Ducks, and retired last year to take the pitching coach job um, at URI, University of Rhode Island. So that's what I'm doing now. Uh, perfect timing. I think the ball started to go over the fence a lot. I got offered that job, so I took it. Well, right
0: time. I'll, I'll stay with you, uh, Kevin. Just I'm curious about how you guys kind of... Evaluate your own careers as you go along. You get up into your, you know, your mid twenties, your late twenties. Presumably, you still love the game, but you made that decision at some point to make the transition to the next phase. So, how do you know when that moment has come? As it does come for the vast majority of uh, players. Yeah, me and uh, Dan I
4: talked about this with him on his podcast. You know, it kind of depends. There are a lot, a lot of people, like, When you got drafted, you know, if you're a prospect. So I could kind of see the writing on the wall, you know, I, I knew what I had to do to make it. And I knew it going in, I wasn't, you know, bitter for getting released or anything, because I knew I was a, a 19th rounder. And so I wasn't, you know, a top five pick, so I knew I had to sort of overperform, and um, I had, I repeated a level, and I knew, I was like, okay, that's, you know, I'll probably get released here at the end of the year, it's kind of, baseball, you know. Um, and then, just bouncing around a couple, two different, different teams when like they go into indie ball. I thought my chances of making it to the big leagues were very slim. My chances of getting even picked up by an affiliate were very slim. So then obviously making it to the big leagues is even more slim. So I think that for me, it was, am I going to make it to the big leagues? Probably not. So I think it was ready to go you to know, something else.
0: Mm-hmm. I guess, Dave, you could take this one. At, you guys have been in affiliated ball and indie ball. When you're in indie ball, do you feel like it's really hard to cross that chasm again and get back? Or is it more about how you pitch? Is it more about who you know and you're kind of working your contacts and saying, hey, Uh, here's how I'm doing?
1: Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. It's uh, having gone into indie ball and then got a chance again to play in affiliated ball, the biggest thing for me was obviously, yeah, first off, you have to pitch well. And then even still, if you pitch well, a lot of it just comes down to networking. It's just like any other job. Like you could be great at your job, but if you're not putting yourself out there and kinda of, uh, reaching out to I was just emailing cold emailing GMs directly saying, Hey, uh, I have some video here, if you wanna take a look at me? Uh, that'd be great and uh, I just kept doing it. It just it's kind of just more of a persistence thing, so in terms of getting back into it from indie ball, that's kind of just what I went with.
0: Did you pitch to Tebow?
1: I did. I <laughs> faced him twice this year. I had a kind of a, a weird year. I got to face uh, Tulowitzki and Donaldson on a rehab assignment, too.
4: Cool. Yeah.
1: And it was probably one of my worst starts I, I had, but I managed to, I had them go 0 for 4 with three punch-outs, so that was pretty cool. Nice. Um, I faced Donaldson the first inning, too. First pitch, drilled him, and then, <laughs> and then I, I struck him out twice after that, so that was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, then karma kind of hit me in the uh, fit me in the ass. But Tebow came and got two hits off me. Got <laughs> a bunt like, single down the third baseline, and then a broken bat loop over second base. So. Uh-huh. I was like, yeah, that's baseball, that's how it goes. But it was fun playing against him. It was, yeah. uh, I mean, the big crowds, and stuff like that, but it was cool.
0: Well, yeah, because you hear a lot about, like, the possibility of bitterness among players who have kind of been putting the time in, like you guys have, yeah. and, you know, do they resent his being there and taking someone's roster spot as, you know, partly a promotional thing? There's I mean, definitely people that
1: yeah. do. I'm kind of, I am kind. think I'm probably in the same boat as these guys were all pretty well aware of, like, how the world works and, and the business of baseball and stuff like that. So I had no problem with him being there. It's uh, It was great to play against him. It was fun to talk to him and, and meet him. He, honestly, he's not a, as bad a baseball player as people no, make him out to be. Got good doing numbers good. there. He's doing yeah. well. And, I mean, if there's any guy that's going to put the effort in, it's going to be him. So I think if... Uh, he has the ability to go and do that. I mean, why wouldn't he? You know what I mean. So I'm not going to knock a guy for that.
2: Uh, Dan, I know you you bounced around with a few independent league teams, and uh, and Dave, you uh, you played in Australia at one point. Kevin, you played in Germany. So when uh, when you have these these different opportunities, how much of it? How much are you motivated by? You know, I can I can go, I can I can succeed at this level, and I can get noticed. I can kind of work my way back. And how much is maybe. Taking a, a realistic perspective, thinking, alright, maybe, maybe it doesn't speak so well that I'm, I'm having to look for these opportunities, but look at, look at this chance that I have to have to go to, to play in Germany. You, you had said, uh, Kevin earlier that you just went to Germany to play for fun, for example, which is an interesting thing to hear from someone who's nearing the end of his professional career. So sort of, what was, what was the motivation that you, that you felt? I guess this is a question for all three of you as you, as you had so many, uh, distant travels along
5: your careers? So my path is different than both of these guys. I blew my elbow out my fourth year in college in front of 15 scouts, and that was the end of my college career. So I had to fight back through indie ball, and after two good seasons, into my third season, I blew my elbow out again. So for me, there's... And I always thought that my story had like this fairy tale ending. I always believed that till the very bitter end. And so when it didn't happen, like, I woke up my last season with Long Island, and I could barely shampoo my hair, I was having shoulder problems. So for me, I was always, I I never wanted to take myself out of the American pool. Because once you kind of go over to some of the European leagues or maybe Australia, you kind of almost take yourself out of the running to be in the big leagues. Uh, that's not true of every league, like Japan. I know guys come back from there, but some of the smaller ones. That's kind of the. I'm sure Kevin can kind of speak on that. But for me, I was always trying to claw my way back and catch up to everyone else. Because once you're drafted, your stamp of approval is basically on you. But for me, I was labeled from an early early point on that I was damaged goods, maybe, and then obviously with my elbow being literally damaged. It was just tough for me to fight through, and I wasn't willing to take any chance and play anywhere I could.
1: Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll talk about playing in Australia. Australia. I kind of, uh, my first year in independent ball after I got released, I um, had a real tough thing. I actually had a little bit of the yips, battled the yips for a little bit, and then ended up just deciding to, to retire. So I got a real job, ended up not liking it so much, and uh, I knew there were so many other opportunities to play baseball out there. So I was like, you know what? I'm so young. I know there's places to go and play. I kind of wanted to use an excuse to travel for free, so I said, why not take advantage of this? I mean, if someone's going to help me out to come over to Australia and see a beautiful country and get to play baseball, like, I feel like I'd be an idiot not to do it, so that's kind of how I thought about it, going back into it, and then I just, it, it honestly taught me how to, like, really love baseball again after, like, the first time you get released stinks. I mean, I've been released a few times now, so you, you, not that you get used to it, but you're more comfortable with it. So just going over there was super fun, and I'm still thinking about if I want to do it. Like, he went to Germany. There's so many places to play, and, I mean,
4: if you want to travel and there's an opportunity, like I said, why not? Yeah, I think um, Dan playing indie ball, he was trying to get back in, and Dave, when he went to Australia, I think that helped you get picked back up again. Um, but for me, it was... I've been released twice, um, and I played indie ball. And uh, my brother played in Germany. Played there, he still plays there for nine years. And so for me, it was go hang out with my brother, play German, play baseball in Germany. Um, I played in the Euro Cup. Was, there's some really good talent in Europe. As, um, I'm sure Dave knows. Uh, especially in Germany, they'll have you know a couple guys signed every year. Um, a couple of big injuries, Max Kepler, Donald Lutz. It's a really good experience. I mean. Um, but for me, it was just fun. I mean, I was I was throwing probably 83, 84, <laughs> uh, but I was getting it done.
0: So. Can I ask one more to one guy? <laughs> Will you allow it?
2: I think I also have the yips, the conference timing <laughs> yips. Uh, <laughs> I keep trying to end this conference on time, and it just never works. Uh, okay, one more question.
0: Okay, yeah, so I think I'll, I'll just ask Dan. All of you guys have played with big leaguers who were kind of... <laughs> on the tail end of their career you know former guys who've been there and are now on the way down and I'm curious about what the attitude of those players is because sometimes you'll hear that like at AAA guys are bitter like they feel like they should be there and they're not getting the chance or you know they just feel like they've been overlooked or they had that big league lifestyle and now they don't do you find that the guys who are playing for the Ducks for instance like do they have a, a positive attitude? Are they mentoring you? Are they doing it because they really still love the game? Or are they kind of feeling like, I should be there, I deserve to be there?
5: I mean, just like anything else, it varies from person to person. I've, had, I've been around some guys who were, you know, they took the time to not show up for VP like everyone else. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they kind of made it known that they were a little privileged and um, that never feels great because you want to feel like, you know, you're rooting for them the same amount. and to feel like you're all in the same boat, but most of the guys are pretty decent guys and I think a lot of the guys who probably feel that way where they're above everyone else, probably just wouldn't sign up for Indie Ball because it's, right. it's a it's a huge step down in glamour and all that, and even the Atlantic League, which is the pinnacle, and I kind of joke that I helped Rich Hill get back to the big leagues because I was on the Camden River Sharks, the last team that he pitched against when he punched out like 14 <laughs> batters in like three innings or something. It was a, it was a bloodbath, but, um, you know, there's a lot of great guys that roll through and pass it on. They pass on the knowledge, and then there's other guys who kind of keep to themselves. It's, for me, like I said, kind of just... This normal distribution of everything that you'd see from regular people. Mm -hmm. All right, well, we will wrap up there.
0: Dan, Mm -hmm. Dave, Dave, Kevin, thank you guys very much. Thank you. you. All right. Dan, you can clear the room. Thanks, everyone. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have recently pledged their support include Amy Petz, Nathan Daggy, Joe Mielenhausen, Arthur, and Michael Gates. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. One of our guests in that second segment there, Dan Blewett, has his own baseball podcast, so I've linked to that in the show notes. It's called Dear Baseball Gods. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. We will get to your emails very soon, but you can keep them coming at, at com or via the Patreon messaging system. We will talk to you all very soon. I could go out on the town
5: Talk too much and laugh too loud If I'm
0: already on my way down I might as well just work the crowd Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Can
2: you hear me now?